because we got the alternative energy right. free autonomy and welcome to the radioactive show produced at the studios of 3CR Melbourne and heard nationally on the community radio network hello and welcome to the radioactive show produced on the unceded Wurundjeri lands at 3CR in Nam Melbourne and brought to you with the support of the ACE Nuclear Free Collective at Friends of the Earth. My name is AC Hunter. Today's show is a commemoration of the anniversary of the atomic bombing of Hiroshima in Japan. Setsuko Thurlow is a survivor of that devastating event. She's dedicated her life to sharing her testimony and working towards a world free of nuclear weapons. Last year, she accepted the Nobel Peace Prize on behalf of the International Campaign for the Abolition of Nuclear Weapons. This is her story of what happened on August 6, 1945. Recorded in March last year at the Centre for International Studies and Diplomacy, part of SOAS University of London. Please be aware that her story includes graphic depictions of injuries and deaths caused by the nuclear bomb, which some listeners may find upsetting. I was a 13-year-old, grade 8 student in the girls' school. And about three weeks prior to that date, we had been recruited to work as a volunteer for the Army headquarters. We were to be trained as um, decod- secret message decoders. And on August 6, 1945, that very day happened to be Monday, our very first day to work as a full-fledged uh, decoding assistant. So I met the girls, about 30 other girls in my group, at, in front of the Hiroshima station. And uh, I led the group, said left, right left, like, in March, you know, that kind of militaristic thing at the century. I had to go something like that, too. But anyway, at, uh, at 8 o'clock, we were on the second floor of the wooden building, and the uh, assembly started. And Major Yanai, who was responsible for us, said, you girls spent three weeks to get the decent training and to act such and such, this is the day you start proving your um, patriotism and loyalty to the emperor. We said, yes, sir, we will. At that moment, I saw the bluish-white flash outside the window, and uh, I still have the sensation of flying up in the air. You see, by the strong blast generated by the bomb, all the buildings were collapsing. Obviously, the building I was in was collapsing, and together with that building, my body was flying, falling down. I don't know how long I was unconscious, but when I regained the consciousness in the total darkness and silence, I found myself incapable of moving, 
I was pinned under the collapsed building. So I knew I was faced with death. This is it. Americans finally got us. That thought crossed my mind. I was faced with death, but I was not panic-stricken. It's strange to look back, to think back, that how calm and serene I was facing possible death. Then I started hearing faint voices of the girls. Mother, help me. God, help me. So I knew I was surrounded by the girls. Then all of a sudden, the strong male voice said, I'm trying to free you. Keep pushing, keep moving, keep kicking. And you see the sun ray coming through that opening. Escape toward that direction as quickly as possible. Crawl. And he was touching my left shoulder from behind. So this man, obviously the soldier at the headquarter, somebody who rescued my life. I never saw his face. It was just a voice in the darkness. By the time I came out of the building, or the rubble, shall I say, the rubble was on fire. I looked back, and for a second I thought about other girls, but I could not get back. But I did see two other girls who managed to escape. So three of, three of us were together. And although it happened in the morning, it was dark when I came out, perhaps because of the smoke, soot, and particles in the air, which was rising together with a mushroom cloud. And as my eyes got used to the darkness, I started seeing the moving dark objects nearing me. Then the soldier said, you girls join that group of people and escape to the nearby hills. And I waited and see some more people coming closer to me. And I call them procession of ghosts. They were slowly shuffling from the center part of the city to where I was and to the further out. The woman's hair was standing straight up They were burned, blackened, and swollen, and skin and flesh were hanging from their bones, and they were just walking like that. Walking, not just simply shuffling slowly. And some were carrying their own eyeballs, and as they collapsed, 
their stomach burst open and intestine stretching out. We three girls joined this procession, of course. As the soldier told us, we learned to step over the dead bodies and dying people and escape to the nearby hill. At the foot of the hill, there was an army training ground, about two football fields put together, quite a large space. By the time we got there, the place was packed with the dead bodies and seriously injured people. In a situation like that, you would imagine perhaps people were screaming for help, running, shouting, but that's not what I remember. It was eerie stillness or silence. All I heard was just whispering voices. Water, please. Please give me water. Every single person seemed to be asking for water. So when we got to the foot of the plane, the hill, we looked around and we looked ourselves and uh, although we were covered with blood and dirt, but we are mobile, we were functioning decently. So we three girls went to the nearby stream, washed off the dirt and blood, and we tore off the blouses and soaked the cloth into the water and then dashed back to the dying people, injured people, and put the wet cloth over the mouth and they just suck in the moisture, something like that, and then look at you and thank you. And then that is that. We kept ourselves busy all day doing that. There were no buckets and no cups to carry the water. That was the only way we could do anything to help dying people. I quickly looked around and see if there were any healthcare professionals. In that huge place, there was no doctor, no nurses. Of course, they themselves, about 80% or 90% of the healthcare professionals were killed, I understand. But the remaining uh, surviving uh, healthcare professionals were helping at other place, not where I was. So hundreds and thousands of people in that training ground where I was, nobody with any knowledge of caring for the injured, dying people, nobody was there. Just a little bit of so-called rescue or support work we three girls did, just give them the wet cloth. That was a level of rescue operation we were able to offer. We did that all day when the darkness fell. We three girls just sat on the hill together with 
hundreds or thousands of other people, citizens who escaped to that place. And we girls just sat there all night, just watching the entire city burn. Feeling numbed, stunned from the massive and grotesque kind of death and suffering we had witnessed. There was no emotional reaction as we sat there, as I sat there all night. That's the end of my day that day. Well, next morning, the soldier came around with a megaphone and said, is there a Setsuko Nakamura? Is there a Setsuko Nakamura? I said, here I am. Your parents are here to look for you. It was a surprise. Apparently, my, fa- my father left very early that mon- Monday morning. It was a free day for him, so he wanted to spend enjoying his hobby, which was fishing. So he went out of the city. He went near Miyajima. That's a little island in the inland sea. And near there, he was fishing. And he saw the rising mushroom cloud. So he knew something happened in Hiroshima. So he quickly came back, I was told. My mother was doing the dishes after the breakfast, and she too was buried, but she was dug out, and she was able to escape, and she went to outside of the city to her brother's place. I don't know how my father and my parents communicated or how they came to get together, but the next morning they were together, And uh, they told me, my sister, who came back to the city the night before with her four-year-old child, was burned very badly. You see, her husband was away to the war, And this child was so important to make sure he's going to be protected from the anticipated air raid. She moved out of the city. But unfortunately, the night before, she came back to the city and to see us and next day to keep the doctor's appointment. So at that moment, she and the child were walking over the bridge near the center of the city. And... um, and there was nothing to protect them between the explosion and, and themselves. S- somehow, it's going to be too long, so I won't tell you all the detail how she escaped, but somehow she managed to come back to where our house had stood, and from there she got the help, and she escaped to, the, uh, to near where I was. And uh, she... She was resting at the relative's summer house. So we, found, we knew where they were. So my parents and I went and joined them. And what a sight. 
my sister's body was swollen on about twice, almost three times larger than normal body. My mother said that she could hardly recognize her by appearance. It was beyond recognition, but she could recognize her voice and she could recognize her hairpin special, ornate hairpin she was wearing. Ah, yes, she and the child were both so blackened, and uh, both of them, like other people, just begging for water. But by the time we were ready to give them the water, somehow the jaws and the face, everything was swollen, and so we had a hard time to open their mouths to put the drops of water into their mouths. But my sister, they lived for about four days and until the agony was ended by death. And um, And when they're dead, the soldiers came around, they dug up the hole in the ground, threw the dead bodies and poured the gasoline and lighted the, they threw the lighted match and with the bamboo poles, they kept turning the burning body. Hey, stomach is half burned. Brain is not quite burned yet. Such crude remarks as they worked there I was, a 13-year-old child, just standing, just feeling numbed, not feeling anything. Oh, okay. Anyway, and perhaps this was the most painful memory of all of that day, because... That, that was supposed to be a cremation of human beings. There was no dignity of human beings, just like insects or animals or something. <clears throat> but the memory of that stayed with me for a long time. It troubled me. I remember standing there just standing there, just stunned, looking at it, not feeling anything, not having drops of tears. I started wondering what kind of human being I was. What kind of human being am I? My dear sister, but I couldn't even shed any tears. That memory troubled me for a long time until years later when I went to university and studied psychology and, and started studying how human beings behave in the ultimate condition like that. Cognitive function remains. If the fire starts here, I escape that way. I could think. But I could not respond emotionally because of the massive 
and grotesque external stimuli coming into our psyche. So uh, this was automatically closing off and uh, often in that psychological aspect is hardly any mentioned in uh, survivor's testimony, but I, do, I did feel very keenly about it, so I just mentioned it, but I have to move on. <clears throat> uh, my sister-in-law uh, is still missing. She was a teacher guiding the students' work. At that time, at that, on that day, in the center part of the city, there were several thousand grade seven and grade eight students. They were all mobilized from all the high schools from the city. And they were to do the work for the army and the city government in order to establish the fire break or fire lane. Uh, they were there to do the manual labor. And it was a hot morning. Some kids had the top shirts off and so on, right below the explosion. Several thousand grade seven and eight students. And they are the one who simply vaporized, carbonized. Actually, I have a list of 351 names of my girls' friends from my school. You see, I'm alive and sitting in front of you because I was not in the center part of the city. I was one mile away, and I was inside the building, and I was protected by the collapsed building. But those people were just in the open under that 4,000 degrees Celsius heat, and that just vaporized them. And my sister-in-law was there, and uh, we could never find her body. Uh, the uh, unique way many people died is by the effect of radiation. Um, we rejoiced when we got the news. My favorite uncle and aunt were okay. They had no external injury. So after my sister and her child died, my parents went over there to help them. But they found my uncle and his wife just developing purple spots all over the body. That was a sure sign they were going to die. According to my mother's description, uh, their body, the, their internal organs seemed to be liquefied and rotting and coming out a thick black liquid. She used everything as a diaper, and, but, but those are only two individuals of hundreds of thousands of people in the city. That's how they died. So the effects of the blast and the heat, I told about 4,000 degrees Celsius at the ground level, way at the center of the explosion, that was over a million degree, I understand. By the time that fireball came, descended to the ground, it was 4,000 degree. So the, the effects of radiation, heat, and the blast, and uh, that killed 
about 1,400, no, 140,000 people of Hiroshima by the end of that year. And at that time, about 80% of more of the inhabitants of Hiroshima were non-combatant civilians, children, women, and elderly, because able-bodied men were out fighting at the war. So it was an indiscriminate attack of civilians, non-combatant, which was against international law. Um, um, that time, okay. These, I'm sure you have read about common symptoms and so on. Uh, I'll just briefly say that I lost my hair, not entirely, but some many girls became completely bold. They had to come to school wearing the bonnet or hiding with the scarves. Uh, many people who suffered from the burn ended up having a very thick, unsightly scar. It was extremely difficult for them people to go out on the street. They just hid themselves inside. And some women who were pregnant at that time were exposed to radiation, so they produced um, deformed babies and gossip like that spread fast. So, so anybody who was in Hiroshima who had been exposed to radiation, they were to be avoided because you get contaminated. Well, we didn't have the words contamination at that time. Uh, you, you don't want to catch some poison those people in the city got. So those people had the trouble finding employment and finding the marriage partner, discrimination, all kinds. Um, And the doctors had a very difficult time because nobody knew what, uh, how the radiation affects the human body. So if people had a high fever, some doctors thought oh, maybe that was scarlet fever. They, needed, they didn't know what to do. And of course, even if they knew, there was no medication, no first aid supplies. Well, I must jump all over the place. So Hiroshima happened on August 6th. Three days later, Nagasaki happened on the 15th. The surrender, finally, the surrender took place. You can imagine the kind of psychosocial, political chaos we have to go through in addition to the physical devastation caused by atomic bomb. So... Early in September, General MacArthur, Supreme Commander of the Allied Forces, arrived, and the Emperor hid himself somewhere. The General MacArthur became the all-powerful leader for Japan. He said, I came to Japan with two specific goals. One is to demilitarize Japan, 
and secondly to democratize Japan. That was Setsuko Thurlow, Hibakusha, or Radiation Survivor, sharing her story of the atomic bombing of Hiroshima. Recorded in March 2017 at the Centre for International Studies and Diplomacy, part of SOAS University of London. I'm AC Hunter, and you've been listening to The Radioactive Show. If you missed any of today's show, you can find our podcasts at 3cr.org.au forward slash radioactive. The Radioactive Show would like to thank the ACE Nuclear Free Collective at Friends of the Earth for their financial support and the Community Radio Network for getting the program out to you across Australia. Earth Matters is proudly produced at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on Wurundjeri Country. If you'd like to get in touch with The Radioactive Show, you can call us on 03 9419 you can send us an email at radioactiveshow.3cr at gmail.com or go to our Facebook page. Thanks for listening and here's to a nuclear-free future. negotiate with minor state of title government or anyone on, on our culture, on, on our land. You know, if people say, oh, you're going to finish up with nothing, well then so be it. But at least our hearts will tell us that we did not sell out our country and our culture and heritage for a few scungy dollars. Subscribe to 3CR so that your dollars support Indigenous voices and the struggle for land justice. 